0: good morning again I ask you to if you will to turn with me to 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 2 we'll be looking there at verses 14 through 26 starting in verse 14 and going through the end of the chapter as I said earlier this is a special day graduation Sunday so it will have a special ending if you will we will not end our service in our normal way. We're going to have a little slideshow and our graduates all come in so you guys can get to uh, get to lay your eyes upon them. And of course, know who you're praying for and who you lift up. So the service will end in a little bit different way. I Hopefully that will go smoothly. A lot of it, that depends upon me. So we'll see how it goes. But <clears throat> thankful for today and this opportunity for your, for them to come in and have Each and every one of you pray, pray for them. Second Timothy, I'm thankful for Dr. Moeller last week preaching to us from Second Timothy chapter two. I preached and started my sermon series two weeks ago here in Second Timothy, talking about being not ashamed. Dr. Moeller was coming down and he said, hey, I hope it's okay, but I'm going to preach Second Timothy chapter two. And I said, actually, it's perfect, Dr. Muller. The Lord has worked this out because it's right where I left off. So it fit for us well and fit the theme of last week well. So we want to pick right up where he left off. In fact, we might overlap just a little bit starting in verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing, as we noted before, at the end of his life, writing to Timothy, one of his disciples, one he had discipled in the faith. And not only had he discipled Timothy in the faith, he had left Timothy to lead the church at Ephesus. So Timothy, being younger in the faith, has now been put into a leadership position at Ephesus. Timothy may be thinking that Paul was dead, as it tells us, that no one could find him, surely rejoicing when he receives this letter from Paul, a letter of encouragement and instruction. So as Dr. Moeller asserted last week, the ministry that Paul is calling Timothy to is a ministry of discipleship. And as we have structured ourselves in the life of our church, that's the same way we're seeking to structure the life of our church with discipleship as well. And that discipleship ministry is placed within the body. In other words, as it says in chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have learned and heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He begins by saying this idea of teaching and training, discipleship, and we simply get that word discipleship from the idea of Jesus having his 12 disciples. They are trained up and he taught them and raised them up. Therefore, Jesus tells us, at the end of uh, his time on earth after he had been raised from the dead and seeking getting ready to ascend into heaven he gives us that great commission go and make disciples therefore what we are looking to do is make disciples and this process we call discipleship and that discipleship is placed within the community the body is one-on-one in many ways, but also placed together. We do this together. We train up one another together. We're raised up together. This idea of placing discipleship within the body helps us to understand what the role is of the church itself. That we're not only to reach out to others who do not know the gospel, but we are to grow up together in a church like Taylor's First. We can see that maybe in a healthy way, hopefully, as we're a multi-generational church that, that sees those who have been in the faith for many years and those who have been in the faith for very few working together, being raised up, being taught within this body together within the community. So much so he even says that you are to share in suffering. You do this stuff together as a church. Understand that the devil's greatest desire for the child of God is to separate them out, is to make them think they're alone To pull them away from the the flock, if you will, of sheep, to pull them out of that and make them think they're isolated. But Paul says, in this process, we are not isolated, we're together. That's what we do as a church. We are called to make disciples. And now, before I, uh, I even take any further on this, you may be thinking, well, that sounds hard. How do you make disciples? That sounds like something that, that, that you have to be specially trained upon. You have to be specially brought up on, and surely it takes training. Surely you have to do that. But let's understand that we all make disciples in things all the time. In fact, God has chosen this process, one that comes quite natural to us as people. A process that comes quite natural for us that we take up younger ones than us and we raise them up in something. In fact, discipleship comes so natural to us, it's a natural part of our life. Think about how you raised up your kids. What are the things, fathers, that you love or appreciate? You trained up your kids to love and appreciate those. In fact, much of their love and appreciation came from watching you, whether it's hunting or fishing or sports or any other thing. We create disciples all the time of the things we love and the things we adore. Whatever it may be, mothers, you raise up your daughters and your children to love the things you love and to see the things you love. In fact, this is such a natural part of who we are. It's such a natural part of who we are that what we often see is our children do the very same things or live in the very same areas or are part of the very same aspects of our life. We simply make disciples how we live and what we do. The question is, are we making disciples for Christ? We don't mind saying hard things. Just let your kids come up and cheer for the wrong sports team. They'll be corrected quickly, won't they? Amen? Don't say that in this house, right? Don't bring that up. Don't call it on. We don't cheer for them. When we're making disciples and in, in, in things in life, we don't have any problems saying the hard stuff and correction and rebuking and doing all these other things. But when it comes to the Word and when it comes to raising them up in that nurture and admonition of the Lord, sometimes we back off a little bit. And we act as if we can't step in, we can't get into this, we can't do it. And whether that's some uncomfortableness within ourselves or some lack of of confidence in ourselves, whatever the case may be, what Paul is saying is the most important thing we can be doing is making disciples for Jesus Christ. We're making disciples, but are we making them for Jesus Christ? Our discipleship is based upon this. He says it there, if you look back as we're kind of pulling this in, in verse 8, he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The discipleship that we as believers are looking to is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember that. In other words, he's not saying that's something that, that Timothy has forgotten. He's saying this is something you can never forget. It's something that that you remember today and you need to remember it again tomorrow. In other words, it's the baseline for everything we do that Jesus Christ is alive. We talked about this whenever we discussed our sermon series on resurrection around Easter. This idea that Jesus Christ is alive, therefore, that determines and, and sets the pace for all that we believe, all that we trust, and all that we do. So he says to Timothy, remember this, Jesus Christ is alive. And really this goes for this verses 8 through 13 in our passage, how our faith, our discipleship is built upon that truth, that truth there. And all of this points to the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, as verse 11 says. All of this, we disciple others, we train up others, we raise up others based upon the resurrection of Christ so that others may be saved so that they may know the gospel, so they may know the truth, We want to see people come to salvation beginning to end. Not just start on this journey and step off somewhere. Not get get going and be choked out by weeds. Not get going and be choked out by by the sun because it's too hot. Not get going and be choked out by all the things of this world and snatched up, even as Paul says, by the devil. But we want them to know the salvation and know it from beginning to end to finish the race just like they started well. So this is where we pick up this morning, Paul says. This is our desire to work together in in the body of Christ to make disciples for the name of Christ based upon the resurrection of Christ so that others may be saved through Christ from beginning to end. So he says, remember those things. And now in verse 14, he says this, remind them of these things. Charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we read in it. God, help us to do exactly what your word has called us to do, to be faithful workers for you, unashamed of the truth unashamed of your word. Help us, Father, to be useful vessels, a servant unto you. All for your glory and all for your name we pray, in Jesus Christ, amen. As a teacher, the Apostle Paul is trying to help Timothy understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Earlier in chapter 2, he uses three illustrations, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. We looked at those last week. Now he's going to add three more illustrations or word pictures, metaphors, if you will, of what it is that a follower of Christ is to look like. What it is that one who is pursuing after Christ is to be. And so he's going to use these, hopefully, in this method of teaching to Timothy. He says, we're to be a worker, a vessel, and the Lord's servant. And so now what I want to do, hopefully, is just kind of look at these three from our passage to understand what is it that the child of God is called to be? What is it that we are not only called to be, what is it that we are to do, and what's our ultimate goal in all of this? And I believe as this passage was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and for him that day, also we need to understand that while Paul was writing this, it was also inspired at the same time by the Holy Spirit, which puts no expiration date on it for us. There's no time where we can say this is not for us because we who've been purchased by Christ himself have the spirit of God living within us. This word is God's word, therefore it testifies to us as well. And so I believe just as Paul calls Timothy to be a unashamed worker, a clean vessel, a servant of the Lord, so he is calling all who follow after the Lord to be the same thing. And so today, maybe, we can learn some things from this about what is it that God would have from me. What does he want me to do? First of all, we see the first illustration that he uses is that we are called to be an unashamed worker. An unashamed worker. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. What does the unashamed worker look like for the Apostle Paul? I believe it begins back in in verse 14, chapter 2. Remember them, or excuse me, remind them of these things, charge them before God. Paul tells Timothy that when you are teaching, when you are trying to raise up those who would follow after Christ, when you're telling them or showing them from the truth, what it is that they are to be, you need to remind them that they are charged of these things before God himself. Charge them before God. A good worker or an unashamed worker for the Lord needs to be reminded that they live their life before an audience of one. We have touched on this before, but this point could be raised up over and over again for us. Paul makes it on several times. When we live our life as those who are called by God, seeking to be an unashamed worker for Him, we need to be reminded that we do all of our work before God. Everything we do is before Him. He is our audience. There will be many in your life that will look to evaluate you. There'll be many who will want to put a grade on whatever you are doing. There'll be many evaluations that you have to go after and understand that those grades and evaluations do matter, but they matter in the sense, they matter in the sense that they reflect your greater purpose and your greater motivation. In other words, Paul tells us over and over again that we're to do everything unto the glory of the Lord that everything we do is in mind of the fact that God is watching us. And no matter how good of a boss you may have, or how great of a professor you may be studying under, how great of a teacher you may have someplace, they can't watch everything you do. They can't understand every thought that comes into your head. But we serve under, a war, under one who knows every thought, who knows every deed, who knows everything we do, even in those secret places. We live our our life before the audience of one, which is God Almighty Himself. He sees and knows all of this, and if you're going to be a worker who's unashamed, you need to be reminded that it is before God that you do your work. We need to know that the grades and evaluations that our bosses and our leaders may give us, they matter, but it does not ultimately matter. What ultimately matters over everything else is that we are evaluated by the one who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns over all things. Therefore, we seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added unto it, right? Therefore, we put him first. We live before the Lord and our lives before him in such a way that God knows us, sees us, and understands all that we are. And when we do this, when we understand that our lives are lived before Him ultimately and completely, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to hide. We have nothing hidden. We have nothing set aside. Never a reason to be ashamed at all because we are putting God first and we understand that all of our work is done for His glory. An unashamed worker realizes that they live their life before an audience of one, but an unashamed worker builds his or her life also upon the word of truth. Not only do they realize they're, they're living their life before God, they also b- build their life upon the word of truth. Here's what he says. He says, do your best to present yourself as God as to God as one approved, a worker has not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It tells us that the, the one who is unashamed is going to build their life upon this word, rightly dividing or rightly handling. It literally means to cut it straight. That's what it literally means. I was there uh, one time, a, a preacher was, was preaching on this passage, and he started talking about cutting it straight, and he started talking about how you take a block of cheese and you cut it, and how you just try to cut the cheese straight. And I promise I will never use that illustration ever again. Instead of going, well, he's talking about cutting it. But what he means here ultimately is that what we're saying is that we're to cut it straight before us, right? We're to cut it straight this path. So he's not just simply talking about cutting any sort of, of thing with a knife. Ultimately, this is pointing towards this idea of cutting a path or a road in front of us. I read Proverbs chapter 3 before. Proverbs chapter 3, that great proverb where we we saw what the the, the wise one says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. This is one of the only two other places in the scripture where this word is used. He will make straight your paths, helps us to understand what he's talking about. In other words, if we're going to take the Word, then we use the Word to cut our path straight in front of us. The idea of cutting a new road in territory that needs a path to be made, we use the Word of God to cut the path in front of us is what Paul tells Timothy. Ultimately, we know that as the Scriptures teach, The wide way leads to destruction, but the narrow way leads to life. And so all of us who are children of God, we have been born again and entered in on that narrow way that leads to life, right? But we also can look around us and recognize that the way in front of each and every one of us is not always looking exactly the same. Some of us are called to be this. Some of us are called to be that. Some of us are are asked to do this. Some of us are asked to do that. We all have this different path in front of us. And what Paul is telling Timothy is that while all of us live our life on the narrow way, those paths are to be cut out in front of each and every one of us by the Word of God. That's how we make it straight. That's how we cause it to go. We're to cut our own path, but our path must be cut by the Word of God. A good worker is one who is unashamed in following after God's Word and cutting his path, laying his life before the Lord to say, lead me, direct me, guide me. Make my path straight by your word, leaning on his understanding. Good worker who is unashamed works hard at these things. Meaning, as he says, do your best to present yourself to God. This call is a call of action or work. Ultimately, what that means is that we are to make this our primary task. To work hard at something means, ultimately, at this place, that this becomes number one for us. This becomes what we do. We seek to be approved as a worker unashamed before God. Therefore, we live our life before that audience of one. We carve our path before us based upon the word, and we do it first and foremost for the glory of God. Do your best here to do it. In other words, make it number one. Make it this make this primary. Make this the first thing that fits in line with the verse I've already quoted where Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. Make this primary, Paul says. To be an unashamed worker means you make this first. Because here, Paul is going to contrast one who doesn't make it first. The good worker or the unashamed worker is going to be contrasted with the one who is or should be ashamed or the bad worker in our passage because he says, he says, but avoid irreverent Bible for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them. Paul makes no shame of naming names, or Hymenaeus and Philetus. You need to see Paul says that there are some who aren't approved by God, who aren't. Uh, 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 being good workers for the Lord. There are some out there who are doing things that they shouldn't do. They're not cutting the path straight with the word. In fact, they're using the words to make it irreverent. In other words, words matter. What you teach matter. What you say matters. And he says, there's some out there who are seeking to lead people astray by their irreverent babble. And what Paul means here by irreverent babble is anything that does not give God the glory or honor, but turns people away from him. He says that stuff spreads like gangrene, and isn't it true? As we know, gangrene, a septus that gets into the body, an infection that gets into the body, and as soon as it does, it spreads quickly to every other part of the body. So it is, Paul says, if you think about the body of Christ, when irreverent babble, people who are not seeking to be approved, people who are not living their life before God, when irreverent babble gets into the body, it spreads like gangrene. It poisons everyone around you. So Paul says, that's exactly what's happened with this Hymenaeus and Philetus guys. These fellows have have come in and they started to say things that's upsetting everybody. They're telling everybody that the resurrection's already happened. In other words, y'all missed out on heaven. That's what they're saying. In other words, don't worry about that. Y'all missed out on heaven. There's nothing left. That's done. Jesus has already taken up who he's going to take up. So they're spreading this nonsense that goes against the word of God, not rightly handling cutting it straight, but now handling it in the wrong way. They're spreading this nonsense and it is going into the church and it's leading some astray. Could you imagine if I came into you today and started to preach to you, telling you that heaven's already full, it's over, there's nothing left, right? We missed out on the bus. We were like unicorns on the ark. They didn't make it on there. We missed it. And so if I began to spread that to you guys and said that that's the case, we missed out on heaven, then surely wouldn't that poison the whole well of what we teach and know here? Why would you continue to follow? Why would you continue to come? Why would you want to know this? It would cause disheartening among us all to think now there is no purpose. Everything we've heard is false. What do we believe? What do we know? It would send us into chaos like gangrene poison in the body. Paul says that's what workers who are or should be ashamed do. They do not rightly handle the word, but they seek to push people away, upsetting the faith of some, it says in verse 18. And although Paul says the faith of some is upset, many will try to upset us on this. Many will try to upset God's people with irreverent babble or nonsense. The foundation still stands, Paul says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. We live and we serve before an audience of one, and guess what? That one knows who His children are. If you're a child of God today, God knows you're a child of God. There's no secret children of God. If you're a child of God today, God knows you are a part of His flock. He knows who His children are. Make sure you know that you are His. But not only that, He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He puts these two things. Error tears down. False doctrine tears down. Error destroys, but truth builds up. And it builds up upon this foundation. Secondly, building off of that statement, he will depart from iniquity, as it says. We're called not only to be unashamed workers, but we're called to be clean vessels. Verse 20 begins, every house is equipped with vessels or utensils, if you will, of different kinds. We know how that works in our kitchens. We have have the drawers that the kids can play in and the drawers they can't, right? We got the cabinets of the nice fine stuff and the cabinets of the junk. We got pots, we got pans, we got dishes, we got our Tupperware. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We got our paper plates and our Dixie cups, if you're from where I'm from. And so we have these different utensils and and different pots and pans, different things in our household. And we have this, this, this clear delineation of what we pull out when guests arrive and what we use when there's no guests here, when it's just us. We have this, and so Paul's using this description to say there is a great house. This is a um, a, a house of, of wealth, a house of significance. There's a great house, and in this great house, there's some vessels of gold and silver, some of wood and clay, some that we use for honorable use, some for dishonorable. In other words, There's some that we use for those menial tasks that we have that nobody can see. We're just using this in the kitchen. And then there's some that we present the finest of things we can when we are trying to present it. Paul says we understand this distinction. We understand this distinction. Surely the gold and silver is that of honorable use, the wood and clay of dishonorable And there can be little doubt that this picture that Paul wants us to conjure up is the Lord's house himself, his church, if you will. Paul has used this idea of a vessel before. He says to the Corinthians that we're jars of clay. In that illustration, Paul is appealing to his physical weakness and how, how difficult this is in his physical body. But here, here he's appealing to what is carried in this vessel. Paul is not appealing to the physical nature that he has. He's appealing to what is it that he presents? What is it that he brings? And here he's appealing to what is carried. Here Paul is referring to carrying Christ's name to unbelievers or to anyone that would hear it. Therefore, Paul says that we should be vessels of honorable use because we carry the name of Jesus with us. He's calling Timothy to the same task. In verse 21, he makes this appeal to him. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He calls him in this appeal that that if we are going to present Christ as a vessel, then we as the vessel must be clean ourselves. We clean ourselves up from what is dishonorable. We clean ourselves up from what is dishonorable. We don't present the name of Christ in a dirty old tray, right? We take the name of Christ in an honorable vessel so that the, the very message that it carries, the very thing that it carries becomes a testimony, becomes a testimony to the very vessel that brings it. Here are the actions and thoughts that are sinful. Personal holiness is what he's after, Right? above it was about belief the worker and what we teach what we know to be true now it's about what we do and so he says in verse 19 depart from iniquity in verse 22 flee youthful passions here this is sandwiched between these two statements depart from iniquity flee youthful passage passions therefore this vessel that he's calling us to be for honorable use is one that seeks after holiness Verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Some of you may be thinking in here today, well, I'm not very youthful, so that verse isn't for me. Here, he's not just talking about young people here. He's talking about the temptations that remain sometimes for those who were born in immaturity or who remain in immaturity. The temptations of youthful lusts and passions still remain for each and every one of us until the day the Lord calls us home. He calls us to maturity. Yes, he's talking about flee sexual sin, surely. Flee sexual sin. But flee self-indulgence. Flee selfish ambition flee a headstrong nature, flee obstinacy, flee arrogance, flee all of these things that characterize someone who is young in the faith, someone who is not mature, someone who does not understand ultimately who is in control and what he has done. Flee all of those things that characterize the youthful passions. Get rid of those. Many of us in our youth believe we're bulletproof, right? Bulletproof till we're 25? Think we can make it? For some of us men, it takes about 45. But ultimately, what we have to be aware of is that we are humbled by the fact that we know everything that we have is given to us by the Lord, that there's no need for selfish ambition or self-indulgence because God has provided all that we need and in him is enough and he's satisfied us. We know that God is enough for us, and that moment we figure that out is the moment we stop fleeing after youthful passions and lusts. And Paul says, don't flee after those. No, Jesus is enough. And so instead of fleeing after those things, he says, pursue holiness. That's what a clean vessel does. Pursue holiness. Move away from, from the youthful passions and lusts and come after what is good the positive things, move toward righteousness, faith, love, peace, move together with those things, then then we can be used by God. If we're going to be a vessel that can be used by God, we must, we must flee after what is wicked, flee after youthful lusts, flee from those, and go toward what is good. In other words, the scriptures make it clear that no one is just sitting there doing nothing. Either we're pursuing after wickedness or unrighteousness or unholiness, youthful lust, as Paul says, or we're pursuing after righteousness and love and joy and faith. It's just one way or the other, which way are you going? What are you pursuing? And those that are honorable, those can be you that can be used by God are pursuing after, His righteousness and his justice and his love and his mercy. Many of us say we want to be used by God. We must recognize that if we want to be used by God, we must cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable and be clean vessels before Him. Third and finally, we're called to be the Lord's faithful servants, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels. We've seen him refer to this already. He's talking about ultimately in this time and place of those who would try to get them to, to trust in myths or those who try to get them and trust in sorcery or those who try to get them in trust in worldliness or ideas, worldly ideas. He's saying you've got you to gotta get rid of that irreverent babble. You've got to move away from those ignorant controversies. Surely the the man of God, the one or or woman of God who is seeking to serve God, the worker that is approved, surely they cannot avoid all controversy. But we have to know that what has to be most important for us is that the gospel is proclaimed and maintained. That all controversy should be set aside for the sake of the gospel. And the only time we enter into controversy is when the gospel itself is at stake. He says, not quarrelsome but kind. Hear what Paul says. Let the Lord's servant not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Y'all got that? Be nice. That's not me. That's Paul saying that. It's the Spirit of God saying that. Don't look for fights. Be nice. Be kind. The child of God represents this. Be kind be able to teach, be ready to take the word of God and wield it before them. This one that you're using to cut your path before you take it and wield it before them. Teach them of what is true because they've fallen for error. Endure evil patiently, he said. Even put up with some of this nonsense, correcting opponents with gentleness. Paul is not telling us to shrink back from correction. He's telling us how to correct. In fact, he tells us in Verse 7 of chapter 1, that we've received a spirit of power, not of fear, not of timidity. So we correct in this way, with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance. This ultimately, as I said before, is the goal. That those whom we have around us, those whom God has placed in our life, may come to repentance and faith through the gospel. So therefore, we seek to be unshamed workmen, unashamed workers that rightly hold the truth, setting it as primary in our life. We seek to be clean vessels that present Jesus Christ from a clean, honorable vessel that is honorable to him. We seek to be the Lord's servant that do not get caught up in nonsense but stays clearly focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaiming that. And we know that the real enemy here, the reason why we are patient and kind with gentleness, the real enemy, as Paul says, is the devil himself. He says, we correct our opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Our desire is knowing that that either you're in God's hands or you're in the devil's hands. Either you see the clear light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, or you are blinded to the light and you're living in darkness under the power of the devil. We know this to be the case. So we don't look at those who are in the devil's hands as the enemy. The devil is the enemy. We look to them as those who need to be rescued with the gospel. Therefore, we seek to be workers that are unashamed. Therefore, we seek to be vessels that are clean. Therefore, we seek to be servants that are faithful because they need to be rescued from the gospel. And it does our own soul good to follow after Christ in this this way. They need the truth. Their hope is in a faithful gospel witness by someone that is not ashamed of that truth and presents it from a clean vessel. One commentator rightly asks, who is sufficient for these things? You may be here this morning thinking that same thing. We surely will fail at this, each and every one of us. But we need to remember that our Savior Jesus Christ has not failed that ultimately he is the great unashamed worker. Ultimately he is the honorable vessel. He is the servant of the Lord. He has set the model for us and he says, come and follow me. And so our desire is to be like our savior in all of these things. But here's the great thing about it. We do not have a, have a performance-based salvation. We do not have a salvation based upon how we do and what grade we receive. We have a salvation that was been graded already and it received A plus in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have received that and so now we are free not to live off this performance of a good worker or a clean vessel or a servant of the Lord. We're free to live off the grace and mercy of our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our freedom has now allowed us the privilege to take that name anywhere and everywhere we go. That freedom has given us a purpose through Christ Jesus to be an unashamed workers, faithful, clean, Vessels, servants of the Lord. And today, today we look to Christ as our model and our strength in this task. We must come to the truth, not irreverent babble. Commit to the word and present it as faithful and be used by God as his people. Our desire are these things. Today we have the wonderful privilege, as I said, of recognizing our graduates here at Taylor's First. Our graduates will be coming in in just a minute. I want to pray for them, and then you'll see a video, I believe. And my desire for you is that you'll be praying for them as well, that you'll pray that these graduates would not only know Jesus, but they would be unashamed workers for the Lord, clean vessels for him. Pray these things today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our life, for it is good. God, I thank you for these graduates who come. I thank you for the word that has been, has been laid out for us. God, help us all to not only trust in Jesus Christ, but follow him with every step. God, you are good to us. We ask now, God, that you would help us to see your goodness as a great and glorious privilege and that we would live our life for you. And as these graduates come forward, may each and every person in this room pray for them that they would live their lives for you as well. All of this we ask in Jesus' name.